Well, it's been one of those uh, effective commercial taglines. It's been around ever since it debuted in, in 2006. One time was the most, uh, and perhaps still is, the most recognized taglines among banks. One of the most effective taglines as evidence that 85% of consumers recognize the tagline and the bank that it's famous for. It's a tagline that relays a message that we would all like to be true. And simply stated, it says, you're richer than you think. Uh, being richer than you think is a, a pleasant reality. Uh, whether it's as simple as finding that loony or two that has escaped out of our pockets and tucked down and behind the cushions and one day in our moment of discovery it's there and we indeed think we're richer than we, than we thought. Or whether it's a, a distant great aunt or uncle that has now deceased but in their last will and testament they actually remembered you and you really are more richer than you think. Uh, there's something about wealth, there's something about money, riches that easily grabs our attention, isn't it? Money, of course, is one of those necessary things in life in order for us to live. We get that. But it's also one of, one of our idols of our culture that on more than one occasion, in fact, with, for most of us with great regularity, we need to wrestle with it in order for it to find its rightful place and priority in our lives. It's an interesting thing about that tagline that Scotiabank has used for the past several years. One of the interesting things is that it's a tagline that uh, the messaging around the tagline has had to be massaged and tweaked. Uh, it's a tagline that works well when times are great, in good economic times, but when we find the grim times of, uh, of a recession, like in, for example, 2009, then you run the risk of being tone deaf if you don't massage that just a little bit. And so we are reminded that richness isn't just defined in terms of dollars and cents. Uh, richness is uh, uh, associated with some of the great experiences that we get to encounter, whether that's a great trip that we want to take, or you can define what the experience is. You let us manage your money, and we'll help you participate in some of those great experiences. And then later it gets uh, defined and described as the defining moments in life. Uh, when you hold your firstborn, your only child, and you realize how life has changed and all the responsibility that you now have, and then as your children grow and you sit around the table and they're about to go off to university and college in a couple of years, you let us help manage your money and we can make those experiences count for you. Um, make no mistake about it, for the banks and the investment centers, it ultimately does come back to the dollars and cents, doesn't it? But the idea that riches and richness is to be defined not just merely in terms of our bank accounts and the number of zeros before the decimal points and our financial portfolios is very much a biblical concept. 
We're going to be reminded of that this morning as we consider another special text from the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to go back to the same book that we were last week. This time we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I invite you to turn there with me now. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Our text is going to be verse 9, but once again, let's read broader than that to, so that we can place it in its context. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Apostle Paul writing, and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I gave my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness." As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And God's word will encourage our hearts together this morning. Last week we considered together uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 as we reflected on the idea of uh, the great exchange. Uh, that text was said, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, this morning, today, we can uh, think of this as the great exchange, part two. Our text is verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty or by his poverty might become rich. A wonderful, wonderful verse that exalts the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and his work. We're going to take a look at that this morning and be challenged from it. The context for the writing of 2 Corinthians, if we can just take some time to paint that picture, uh, represents a challenging time in the life and in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, when Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, many of us uh, will remember that as a, as a letter that dealt with a variety of, of difficulties, a variety of issues. 
It was like a catalog listing of things that can go wrong in your church that you never want to have to deal with in your church. Uh, Factions that existed within the church as there was this party spirit. Some who aligned themselves with different Bible teachers and preachers. Some were of Apollos. Some were of Paul. The spiritual ones were of Christ. Morality issues, including incest in the congregation. Believers engaged in conflict with one another and taking each other to court. Misunderstandings about marriage. Dysfunctional practices in their worship and the Lord's Supper. And numerous other issues. However, when we come to 2 Corinthians, it seems that many of those issues have been addressed and dealt with. However, the church is still not without its, its issues. Of course, no church ever is. Uh, one of the main issues that Paul has to deal with, one of the main issues that lingered there, is that, uh, and it becomes one of the major reasons for why Paul writes this epistle, is that there were those within the church at Corinth who were questioning the, the legitimacy, the integrity, the authenticity of Paul as an apostle and his ministry. Seems bizarre to us, doesn't it? As we would reflect on, on, on Paul and how God, by his spirit, had his hands laid on him and was using him in such a profound way. But there were those in Corinth who thought Paul was a fraud, thought Paul was a, was a fake, was just in it for himself. And so they were questioning the legitimacy of his apostleship and of his ministry. So much so that this becomes the major reason for him writing 2 Corinthians. You read through that epistle, and practically every chapter is taken up with his defense of being an apostle, with two exceptions, chapters 8 and 9, in this section where we find ourselves this morning. It's as if he takes a break and he addresses another key matter. Paul's going to draw on his authority as an, as an apostle, but he's not defending his apostleship per se. Instead, what we find Paul doing here in this chapter is that he is challenging the Corinthians on the subject of giving. Now, aren't you glad you came this morning? Uh, we know the Bible has a lot to say about giving, doesn't it? And Jesus himself has a lot to say about money and possessions. We're reminded that out of the 38 parables that Jesus told, those stories that Jesus told, 16 of them dealt with money and possessions. He had a lot to say about that subject. One writer on this reality commented and said that if the subject of money bothers you, then you can be thankful that Jesus isn't your pastor because you'd be preaching on the subject a lot. It's not so much that Jesus is concerned about how much, how much money we have, but he is very much concerned about how much money has us, hence all his instruction. And if we were doing a series of sermons, messages on the subject of giving, then our passage here would be an important one to, to include. And what we find as the overarching theme from this passage this morning and it's actually the first point in our message, is that God delights in grace-filled giving. When it comes to the practice of giving, God delights in grace-filled giving. God delights when our giving is a, is a reflection 
of our gratitude for the grace that he has shown to us. Bill read for us that probably strange passage to be reading as our Bible reading this morning from Ezekiel 36 as our Old Testament Israel preparing to build the tabernacle and the people were coming and giving and giving generously, so much so that they had to give instructions, don't bring any more. Those in leadership here would love for that to be our problem, wouldn't it? All right? Uh, God delights in grace-filled giving. We see that certainly in that example in in Exodus 36. But we also see it in our passage this morning in this example of the Macedonian believers in verses 1 through 5. The context is that the believers in Jerusalem are in a very hard way financially. Grim times, tough times. And Paul has initiated a collection for the needy saints that are part of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul's concerned about this matter for a number of reasons. Uh, Number one, in Galatians chapter two, when Paul is being set aside, or his reference is made to Paul being set aside to this ministry of the the, uh, Gentiles, uh, he is challenged and he accepts the challenge from Peter, James, and John to remember the poor. That was going to be part of his ministry mandate. And here we see him making good in that, following through on it. Even more significant than that is that Paul is concerned about the unity of the church. We know that there was this tension that existed between the the Gentiles and the Jews when the church was initially formed. Uh, Jesus was doing something different as he founded the church and as he continued to build the church. The Gentiles were now admitted into the church in the same way that the Jews were. Jesus was breaking down, as Paul says in Ephesians, this this division, this wall of hostility. The Gentiles who were considered by the Jews as being unclean were brought into relationship with the Lord Jesus in the same way and on the same basis as the Jews. And so within that arrangement, it was hard for the Jewish people not to think that they were losing their place of privilege. And so there was this tension. And we remember in Acts chapter 15 where there's actually a a special church council that is assembled and brought together as to how they should deal with this matter. The Gentiles need to become proselytes, need to become Jews in order to be in right relationship to God and part of this new entity. And of course the answer to that was no. That going forward, that's not how this works. It's not a requirement. But the tension still existed. And that's why wherever Paul goes and plants his churches, you have these false teachers, the Judaizers, that are there to disrupt. Because they lie, losing their their privilege, arguing that this is not legitimate. And so here we have the believers in Jerusalem encountering extreme poverty. And here is the apostle Paul, the one who has the ministry mantled to the Gentiles. And he's founded these churches, and now he's appealing to these Gentile churches, which he has planted to help with this great need. Romans 15, he actually identifies it as their responsibility. He says, if you receive spiritually from the Jewish people, now you should give materially. And we are indebted to the Jewish people. Jesus, our Savior, came from that nation, from that ethnic line. Abraham and David, we are indebted 
Paul makes much of that in the early part of Romans. But the needy saints at Jerusalem, that need is real. And all these Gentile churches, together what they share in common is that they have experienced this grace of God in bringing them into the family. They are part of the family in relationship with Jesus Christ in relationship to one another. Just think of how special, how reaffirming, even in the midst of the tension, it would be for these Jewish saints to see this outpouring of care that comes from the Gentile churches as they give generously to the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. And so as a result, Paul has initiated this collection for the needy saints. That's the broad context of what we're dealing with here in chapters 8 and 9. And so at the beginning of our chapter, as Paul begins to develop this theme that God delights in grace-filled giving, we get introduced to the Macedonians, the believers of Macedonia. And the fascinating thing and the refreshing thing about them is that they are characterized by the spirit of, of generosity. And they hear about the need in Jerusalem. They hear about this collection that Paul is arranging. The wrinkle is, is that they themselves are dirt poor. Uh, they are those who belong to that group of people who should not and were not expected to be giving and contributing to this initiative because their own needs are so great. However, the beautiful thing is that even in their poverty, these believers want to be a part of the special initiative, even to the point, as we read in verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They literally beg Paul and his colleagues that they want to be a part of the special initiative in blessing the needy saints at Jerusalem. And it's a very moving account that indicates and reminds us that God delights in grace-filled giving. That comes through loud and clear in this example of the Macedonians. God delights in grace-filled giving. We see it in the example of the Macedonians. We also see it, however, in the challenge that Paul gives to these Corinthian believers, to this church. The Corinthians were a people of means. They were people who were a resourceful people. They prided themselves on being a people committed to excellence, certainly with respect to spiritual gifts. They excelled. But Paul realizes that they also need to be challenged on this matter this commitment of excellence to excellence in this matter of the collection of the needy saints at Jerusalem. Uh, the situation is that the Corinthians, when they heard about this collection, they said, yeah, count us in. We're in on that. We picked that up in verse 11. They're in on it. They expressed that they're in on it, but there's actually been a year that has passed and nothing has happened. There's been no... There's been no action. And Paul here is making an appeal to them. And he says in verse 8 that it's not a command. He said, I say this not as a command. It's not a command because grace-filled giving is not motivated by command, but it's motivated by gratitude. And so he encourages them to match their desire with action and fulfill their commitment. Verse 11, he says, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. This is one of the reasons for why he's writing this letter. He wants them to come good and to follow through 
on their commitment. Why the delay? The text doesn't really tell us. We can speculate, perhaps, a variety of reasons. Perhaps there's an issue of spiritual insensitivity. We do know that they, they and Corinth, the church, was, was a carnal church. Perhaps it has something to do with these Judaizers that we referenced earlier who were there present in the church and who were there uh, siphoning money out of the church and using it for their own selfish interests. We know that. The text tells us that elsewhere in the epistle. But whatever the reason that accounts for the delay, nevertheless, they needed to be prodded and making good on their commitment. And so to get them across the finish line of fulfilling their commitment, Paul highlights for them this example of the Macedonians. What do you think it would have been like to have been sitting there as the leadership of the church, the churches at Corinth, and you get this letter? And you know you've made the commitment. And Paul is there with his friendly reminder, and he tells us about the, the believers of Macedonia dirt poor, and yet their spirit of generosity. Are you really going to be shown up, Corinth, by the believers of Macedonia? Those who gave out of their poverty? You resourceful Corinthians, you're really going to let that happen? It might seem as if Paul had a concern that the example of the Macedonians wasn't going to cut it. Uh, we would think, looking at that from our perspective, at least we'd like to think, right? Get that kind of slap in the face and you, you're ready to move forward. You don't need to hear anymore. One wonders if Paul had this sense that even that example of the Macedonians was not going to be enough. Uh, Paul is, uh, talks that he's going to be sending Titus and another one, at least another messenger or two, are going to go ahead to organize the collection and make sure that it's in place. Because Paul says, I don't want to arrive and it not be done. And you know what? I've already told the Macedonians what your previous promise was. How embarrassing it would be to me. Not to say, he says, what it will be like for you if we get there and it's not looked after. It would seem that Paul still has this concern that the example of the Macedonians alone was not going to cut it to motivate them across the finish line. And so then he draws on the ultimate example. He appeals to the supreme example. And that brings us to our verse in verse 9. That God not only delights in grace-filled giving, but God himself is committed to grace-filled giving. For you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor. God is committed not just to the idea and to the ideal of grace-filled giving, but he is also committed by demonstrating it, and he demonstrates it in what he did with his son. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor. 
He is drawing on the ultimate supreme example in order to propel these Corinthian believers across the finish line. And so he says to these Corinthians, for you know, reminds us that God delights to give to the undeserving. Remember last week we talked about this word know, and we said it means to be personally acquainted with but it speaks of knowing intimately. And to these Corinthian believers, he reminds them that they knew firsthand the grace of God. For you know the grace of God. Their lives had been changed and had been transformed by it. Paul and his colleagues were the ones who had taken that message of the gospel, that transforming message. They were the ones who had brought that message to the Corinthians. One would think that they would love him forever. But here he is writing an epistle to defend the legitimacy of his ministry. Boggles the mind. Who were these Corinthians who knew the grace of God? Familiar words and verses that come to us from 1 Corinthians 1. Paul there is talking about our calling. Remember his words? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But... God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who become, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Not many mighty, not many wise, none who are deserving. God delights to give to the undeserving. Not only that, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You remember the next phrase, right? And such were some of you. Who were these ones that Paul could say, you know the grace of God? These people. People just like you and me. Such were some of you. They were people just like us, undeserving God delights to give to the undeserving because he delights in grace-filled giving. And he demonstrates that by giving his son. And he describes this action of his son as he says, though he was rich, he became poor. We sang about this this morning. We understand that in this phrase, in this part of the sentence, he's referring to... The events surrounding the incarnation, the miraculous event of God becoming man in the person of Jesus, his son. It takes us to those familiar words in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what Paul's talking about here in this phrase. 
And Paul says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as, as something to be grasped, as something to be attained. He didn't have to grasp at it. He didn't have to try to attain to it because he already was God. But he emptied himself, or he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. Christ's poverty, when it says that he was poor, Christ's poverty doesn't mean that he ceased to be God when he became man. Notice our text, it doesn't say he who had been rich became poor. What does it say? It says that he was rich and became poor. He took on poverty, if you will, without losing his riches. The incarnation was an addition, not a deletion. A.W. Tozer sums up this part of it well when he says that Jesus did not cease to be what he always was by that which he became. Jesus didn't cease to be God. He became poor while he was rich. But in the incarnation, Jesus did lay aside his privilege, did lay aside his position as he took on Humanity in order to be the servant. And in the incarnation, Jesus left the glory of heaven, the riches of heaven, and came and visited planet earth. In the language of the Apostle John, he tabernacled among us. This is the kind of poverty that Paul had in mind when he speaks of Jesus becoming poor. It's not economic poverty that he has in mind, but rather it's the whole humiliation that was involved in Jesus securing our salvation. John records for us the poverty of humiliation when he writes that this one who was in the beginning with God and who was God became flesh, dwelt among us. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. This is the poverty. This is the kind of humiliation, the poverty of humiliation that Paul has in mind. The Lutheran commentator Linsky gives us a helpful clarification or insight. Some of you might want to think a little bit more on this, but he said it was not the incarnation by which Christ became poor, although this idea is often expressed. He is incarnate now, and certainly not poor, in his glorified incarnate state. So he's saying it's not the incarnation alone in and of itself that rendered Jesus poor. He entered, he he became poor by entering the state of humiliation. He entered this state simultaneously with his incarnation. But the two should not be confused or made identical. Christ entered the state of humiliation in order to be able to work out our redemption, end quote. There is a man in the heavens this morning who is not poor. He's exalted, he's majestic, and he is everything that merits our worship and us bowing the knee. But this one who is so worthy entered into the humiliation or the poverty of humiliation. As we noted last, last week's text, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, 
the ultimate in Jesus' humiliation and the ultimate in Jesus' poverty was being made sin. He who knew no sin was made sin. That's the ultimate in the poverty of Jesus. Being made sin and God regarding him as being sin and treating him accordingly and hence for that season he experienced the separation of his father's soul that he could bear the penalty of our sin. The commentator Hughes writes, and I quote, none was richer than he. None became poorer than he, end quote. And Paul says he who was rich became poor. Now why did he do that? Why did the Lord Jesus do this? Why did he become poor? And Paul's answer provides us this great contrast which underscores the great exchange. For your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul tells us this morning that because God delights in grace-filled giving, you are richer than you think. Because God delights in grace-filled giving and because he is committed to grace-filled giving, this morning as a follower of Jesus, we are richer than we think. We who were poor have become rich. It's interesting here that the you is in the emphatic position. For your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You of all people. Corinthians, you of all people. You who are so reluctant to make good on your commitment to give to the needy saints. You of all people. Jesus, through his poverty, has made you rich. Jesus became impoverished so that you, so that I, so that we think of it this morning so that the likes of us could become infinitely rich. In the same way that Paul was talking about economic poverty when he said that Jesus became poor, so he's not talking about economic riches when he says that we have become rich. When he implies that we who were poor have now been enriched, it's, it's not material prosperity that's, that's in view. But our poverty is a spiritual impoverishment because we are born into this world, and we know when we're born into this world that we are born in sin, separated from God. Out of step with God, no heartbeat for God. We are dead, the Bible says, in our trespasses and sins, separated from God because of our sins, because of our inability to measure up, to hit the target, and we're destined for a, a lost eternity. That's our plight. That's our predicament. And we're not even aware of it. Not even aware of the need we have for a Savior. That is the ultimate and spiritual impoverishment. And so when he says that we have become rich, he's not speaking about economic prosperity as much as we might wish that were the case. But he's speaking about our salvation and the blessings that have become ours, which is vastly superior. As a result of his poverty, our garments of sin have been shredded. Our rags of iniquity have been removed. And instead, we have been clothed with the garments of royalty. 
when God by his Holy Spirit works in our lives and turns on the light, when we see the greatness of our sin, when we see our predicament, our need, and his solution as the only solution for our sin, and we turn from our sin to Christ, and we are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, we're brought into this reliving relationship with Jesus and with God, we enter into this whole new world of blessing, riches. The same author elsewhere in Ephesians 1 and 3, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all the blessings of the Spirit, literally every conceivable blessing of the Spirit in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. These are the blessings that we get to enjoy now. And these are the blessings that enrich us as we develop and grow in our walk with God. But these blessings, we understand what Paul says in Ephesians correctly, it's just a foretaste. It's just a down payment. He says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, where he catalogs that great song of praise that we have been blessed with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this is just the, the earnest of our inheritance. In the New Testament times in the Roman world, when you went to make a purchase, you would agree to terms with the seller, and you as the buyer, you would put in their hands these, these coins that were called earnest coins. Those earnest coins weren't the total payment for the transaction, but they were an indication that there was more of the same to follow, in the same way that we would put down a down payment on things that we would purchase. Paul says that all these blessings capped off with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, it is just the earnest of what we get to enjoy today. But eye hath not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. Peter in his epistle reminds us that we have an inheritance that's reserved, set aside in heaven. Never loses its value, it's incorruptible, never fades away, it's prepared for us. Paul elsewhere in Romans 8 and 17, he says that now as followers of Jesus, we are heirs of God and we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Like, still like the King James rendering, Despite the devolution of terminology, he says, we are joint heirs with Jesus. He doesn't say we're equal heirs. He says we are fellow heirs. We are joint heirs. If your inheritance represents the square and there's 50 of us participating in, in the inheritance as equal heirs, we take that square, we divide it into 50 equal parts, and you get your little square, and I get my little square, and we are equal heirs. That's not what Paul says. He says, with Jesus, we are joint heirs. We are fellow heirs. We have access to it all, is his point. I don't know what that all means. I don't know what that all includes. Except I know that it means that as a follower of Jesus, we are in a place of rich blessing. And that's where these Corinthian believers were as Paul wrote them this letter. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus, confessed that you're a sinner, no hope of heaven or relationship with him apart from the work of Jesus on the cross, dying for your sin, you turn from your sin, turn to Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus this morning. If that's you, 
This is our experience. The very thing that Paul tells us here in verse 9. How is that possible? <laughs> because of the great exchange. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, became poor. So that you, so that me, myself, might be made rich. As followers of Jesus, we've been transformed from impoverished sinners to wealthy saints. We're richer than we think, friends. And to these Corinthians, Paul showed them that they were the recipients of God's grace-filled giving, and now he challenges them that they need to be a channel of grace-filled giving to the churches in Jerusalem. You see, God's intent is that recipients of grace-filled giving should become agents of grace-filled giving. And I know many of you believe that. And humbly, we as a family have experienced much of that from you and from this church. You believe it, I know. God didn't cause us to be changed by his grace so that we would be comfortable Dead Sea Christians. They're fresh channels of water that pour into the Dead Sea regularly. But the water becomes stagnant. The water dies because there's no outlet. The Dead Sea is the recipient of fresh water, but it is not a conductor of fresh water. And God's intention is not that we as recipients of his grace, that we should just hold on to it and say, isn't God good? We need to do that. But there's more to the story. God's intent is that recipients of grace-filled giving should become agents of grace-filled giving. So the chorus to the song says, God forgave my sin in Jesus' name. I've been born again in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, I come to you to share his love as he told me to. And that chorus says what? Freely, freely. You have received freely, freely give. Go in my name, and because you believe, others will know that I live. As followers of Jesus, we've been transformed from impoverished sinners to wealthy saints. We are richer than we think. So then who is there this week to whom you can be that agent, God's agent, of grace-filled giving. Whether it's financial giving to help with the current need, whether it's giving a slice of our time, whether it's our physical energy, whether it's lending an ear to someone in need who's troubled, whatever it might be. Remember, as followers of Jesus, we're richer than we think. And God's intent is that recipients of grace-filled giving should become agents of grace-filled giving.